Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Jonah. The Old Testament book of Jonah found in the Minor Prophets section. If you need help, it's right next to Obadiah. I don't know if that will help you or not. But we are in a series of the Minor Prophets. And what we're doing is we're taking one Minor Prophet a week and going Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, giving someone a taste, a preview, a survey of these often forgotten books of the Bible. There are 12 minor prophets. They, be, they may be minor in size. However, they are major in message. And they are powerful books of the Word of God. Remember, as we just mentioned earlier, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. That every part of God's Word is profitable. It's good for us because it tells us more about God. This is not a book about Jonah. The Bible doesn't, isn't a book about Abraham, a book about Moses. It is a book about God. And all of it is to reveal God to man, to tell us more about our wonderful Savior. And being that, let's look and see what we can learn about our God in the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah, and if you don't mind, we're going to start in chapter number 2. The book of Jonah, in chapter number 2, let's look together starting at verse 1. The book of Jonah, chapter 2, and verse 1. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly, and said, I cry by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord. And he heard me out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardest my voice. For thou hast cast me into the deep, in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about. All thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again towards thy holy temple. The waters compassed me about, even to the soul. The depth closed me round about. The weeds were wrapped about my head. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet that was brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. When my soul fainteth within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came in unto thee, into thy holy temple. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice unto thee with a voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that which I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark something that we learn about God in the book of Jonah, chapter number two? The book of Jonah, chapter number two, and notice with me at the very end of verse number nine. Jonah, chapter two, and verse nine, notice the phrase, salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. And if you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for you being a wonderful God. And Lord, as we come up to you, we're just asking that you would just give us grace and that you would give us mercy. That you would help us to have an understanding of what is going on here. That we could correctly interpret the scripture for the purpose of learning more about you. And that we would become obedient to what you've given us to do because we understand more of your heart, more of your desire, more of your way. And again, as we understand and we'll learn in the book of Jonah that it is not my words that are effective, it is your Holy Spirit. So the best I know how, I surrender myself to you and ask that I just be out of your way, that you can do your own work through your precious word this morning. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Good. Well, as we go through the book of Jonah, most people, even those who are not churched, have at least heard the story of Jonah. So much that many people who are not churched, they've heard the story, they think that it's more of a fairy tale, more of a, um, more of a mythology, more of an Aesop's fable. 
But may I tell you that this is an historical event? This really did happen. And it did involve a man by the name of Jonah. Now, notice as we see this in verse number 1. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. That's Jonah chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2. So God had told Jonah, I want you to rise and I want you to go to Nineveh. Now, geography is very important if we understand scripture. Nineveh is going to be the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. So Jonah, I want you to go up and I want you to go to the capital city of the Assyrian Empire and I want you to deliver a message to them. Now, at this time, most people give Jonah a hard time. And the way that they teach this is that they carry the idea that maybe he's a young preacher boy. Maybe just a little teenager. That is, he's starting to become and trying to figure out, what do I want to do with my life? And he almost has the idea, God, what should I be when I grow up? Should I be an engineer? Should I be a banker? Should I do this? And God says, I want you to be a preacher. And the kid says, no, I don't want to be a preacher. And he gets a ship and goes somewhere else. May I say that's not what is happening here? He was not running away from serving God. He was not. He had already surrendered to God's will a long time ago. And in fact, at this time, he had already had a flourishing ministry preaching before kings. We're not going to turn there, but as a reference, 2 Kings 14.25 mentions that Jonah preached before kings. So we're not dealing with a little snot-nosed preacher boy who's wondering if he should go to Bible college or not, wondering if he should be a preacher or not, whether he should surrender his life or not. We're talking about someone who's already served God, someone who's already been effective in using as God using him as an instrument to get his work accomplished. So who is this Jonah? Well, it's neither here nor there, but it's an interesting tidbit that Jewish tradition places Jonah as the son of the widow of Zarephath. You might think about who is that? Well, remember a little bit earlier in time, there was a prophet by the name of Elijah who stood before King Ahab and says, it will not rain until I say. And then he disappeared. And that God had fed Elijah from the book of Cherith for a while. And then he sent him up to Jezebel's home country to be fed by the widow of Zarephath. And if you might remember in that account, the widow of Zarephath, she, when she met Jonah, she was outside picking the last little twigs so she could create a fire to make the last little meal that they had, bake it into a cake. Then her and her son were going to die. And Jonah said, feed me first. Okay, and so she goes in, goes to the barrel, looks, says, there's enough for one. Let me go ahead and scoop it out. She makes a cake, puts a little bit of oil, and looks, says, well, you know, maybe there is enough for me and my son. So she makes a cake for her and her son and looks, well, maybe there's enough for one more. We'll have that tomorrow. And the next morning she takes it and makes the preacher a cake and then goes, I think there's enough for one more and makes her and her son a cake. Then later on she looks and says, you know what, there's just enough for one more. And for the next three years, there was always just enough for one more. And God supernaturally fed him and fed them. Now, Jewish tradition, it may be right, maybe not, but it's interesting that this son grew up to be Jonah. Wouldn't that be interesting? May or may not, but if it was, could you imagine him learning the trust God? Learning to see that God supplied? Learning to see... If you might even remember the story where the widow of Zarephath's son died and God used Jonah and the boy was risen again. If that was Jonah, surely that he grew up with such faith. Now it may not, but what I'm establishing is that Jonah was someone who'd already seen God work. We saw that in the scriptures. It's recorded that he's already talking to preachers. So we're not talking about some young teenager who says, I don't want to be a preacher. We've already seen someone that says, God, I surrender to your will. I want to see people get saved. I want to see your people touch. I want to be an instrument. Use me however you see fit. Until, until God gives the command, to, I want you to go from the country you're currently at, and I want you to go to the Assyrians. With that, let's go ahead and dive in. The first thing I'm going to show you is Jonah the Patriot. Jonah the Patriot. Why was it that 
Jonah went the opposite direction. In fact, notice with me in verse number 3. Uh, chapter 1, verse 3. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa. And he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, we got some names. This is where Bible geography comes in handy. Remember that Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. The place where Jonah chapter 1, the first couple of verses takes place, is in the country, the nation of Israel. Maybe Judah, maybe um, Israel. But Jonah is a preacher there. And God wants Jonah to go east. And so from the nation of Israel, you would have to go east in order to go to Nineveh to go into the capital of the Assyrian Empire. You would have to go east. Well, Jonah said, you know... I want to go a different direction. So he went to Joppa. Joppa is the natural port of Israel. It's already made the way that it's formatted. It's the natural port in geography for the nation of Israel. It's how the Israelites would be able to get things and transportation from the sea. He went to Joppa and said, let me find out where I could go. If I'm supposed to go east... Let's go west. And so as far as we could tell from the Bible of this times, Tarshish would be equivalent to a city in Spain, what we would now know as modern day Spain. And Spain, if you look at a map from Israel, is going to be to the west. So God says, I want you to go east to Nineveh. And Jonah says, you know what? I'm going to go west. I'm going to go the completely different. Why would he go a completely different direction? Well, may I say the reason why he went to a completely different direction was because he was a great patriot. Because he loved his country. I'm going to go take a vacation because I love my nation, Israel. You say, how in the world does this apply? Well, because Jonah was a prophet, because he knew the Bible, because he understood God, he understood something about prophecy. It had already been prophesied at this time. It was already made known that because of the sins of Israel, God was going to send the Assyrian Empire to come and destroy Israel. And that did happen in 722 BC. And he knew already that the Assyrian Empire were what we would call the Nazis of the ancient world. They were evil, evil people. How evil were they? Well, the good kings, meaning those that we would consider to be morally good or less evil than the rest of them, they would go into a city and conquer it, and they would stack all the heads of all the people that fought against them and put them in a little pyramid outside the city to say, these are all the people that couldn't stand before me. That was the good kings. They were also known for taking people and filleting them alive. You say, what is that? Well, like you would fillet a fish, Except they'd be alive. They would take people and put them up on hooks while they're still alive. And take a knife and while they're still alive, peel their skin off of their flesh. Then they would take the skin and they would put it on the outside of the walls of the city that they conquered. And said, we were here. Oh, that was the good kings. I can't even tell you about the stuff the bad kings did. They would do stuff like take little babies Throw them up in the air and allow their archers to get target practice. These were the people that God wants him to go witness to. And these are the people that Jonah knows according to prophecy. These people are going to come to his country and do the same thing to his family. His descendants. His neighbors. His countrymen. What would you do? Put yourself in Jonah's shoes. God says, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to tell him in 40 days, I'm going to destroy this place. And so Jonah said, 40 days. You know, it has been a while since I've taken a vacation. You know, it takes a couple weeks to get to Tarshish, a couple weeks to come back and I can lay on the beach. It's been a while. I could do 40 days. Let me book a cruise and I'm going to go, and I'll be back in 45 days. It'll be fine. He wanted God to destroy those people. Why? 
He wanted his country to live. He didn't want his countrymen to be killed like this. He didn't want them to be destroyed. He knew prophecy. He knew the Bible. And he also knew that God kept his word. God said 40 days. God's going to destroy him in 40 days. I'll go back and I'll come back to preach. I'll resume my duties in 45. I just need a vacation. It's been a while. Everyone needs a vacation. You can't judge me for taking a vacation. I work hard. Preacher, you look tired. Yeah, I do. I do. I'm going to go ahead and take a break. And so he booked passage thinking about the beaches of Spain. What an exotic location. I'll just take my time. It wasn't because he was a snot-nosed punk who didn't want to do what God wanted him to do. It was because he knew God would keep his word. In 40 days, he's going to destroy my enemies? Sure, let's do that. I don't need to go there. I'm going to let God do his work. I'm going to take a vacation. And because of that, God will keep his word. And my people will be saved from horrible destruction and torture in the future. Why did Jonah run? Because he loved his country. Why did he run? Because he was a great patriot. He was content to allow God to do his work. Now, how much of a patriot was he? May I also say that he was such a good patriot, he was willing to die for his country. Now, isn't that a good patriot? Someone who's willing to die to keep their nation free. Someone who's willing to die to allow their nation to thrive. Someone who's willing to die so their nation won't be conquered. Notice with me in Jonah chapter 1. As we continue on, notice with me in verse number 3. But Jonah arose to flee from Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. And he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with him into Tarshish from the presence of God, the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind unto the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was to be like broken. So Jonah gets on passage, he gets on the ship, and as they're traveling in the Mediterranean Sea, a storm comes up, and it's ready to break this ship. The waves are coming, the storm is coming, and the ship is just in terrible danger. Notice Verse number five, then the mariners were afraid and cried every man unto his God and cast the wares that were on the ship into the sea. So as the she is, is going, they're so scared that these big rugged, maybe atheistic men are saying, listen, we're praying to our gods. We need someone to answer. This, this is a supernatural storm. And they got to the place in order to lighten the load. They're afraid the ship's going to sink. They start throwing uh, crates overboard, barrels overboard, lightening the load. They're tossing the things they were going to sell. Uh, these were probably Phoenicians who were the traders of the Mediterranean Sea. And they made their money by carrying cargo from one port to another and selling it. And they're getting rid of their profits. They're getting rid of the things they could sell. because they're Now, you only do that when you're desperate. When you think the ship is going to sink. And they're praying. And they're asking everyone to pray. And they're lightening a load. But where was Jonah during this? Verse 5 at the end. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship. And he lay and he was fast asleep. So as the storm starts coming. And the raging, the raging waves are hitting. The people are starting to get desperate. Jonah says, good time to take a nap. See you guys later. Why in the world did he go to sleep? Because he was willing to die for his country. God's going to sink the ship. Nothing I can do about it. I, if I get sunk in the bottom of the ocean, I can't go to Tarshish and go warn them. I'm going to sink. 40 days, God's going to destroy them. My country will live. I'm willing to make this sacrifice. You understand, Jonah is a great patriot. Jonah is a believer in God's word. He believes what God's going to do. He understands that God is bringing this tempest. He understands that God is bringing this storm. He understands that God is bringing destruction and he's fine with it. I mean, he's not suicidal. He doesn't want to die. But he's willing to die because he loves his country. Because he's a great patriot. Because he knows the Bible. He knows God. He's willing to die. That is how much he believed in God. He went to go take a nap. He says, I'm, 
this may get a little rough. I might as well go to sleep. That way I don't have to feel anything. So they're upstairs trying to weather the storm, trying to do everything they can. They're praying and Jonah's sleeping. And someone happens to go check on him. Hey, where's that one guy we picked up at Joppa? I don't know. Well, let's go find him. And guess what? They find him. Verse number six. So the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, old sleeper? <laughs> Why are you sleeping? Get up. We're going to die. What are you sleeping in a time like this? We need all hands on deck. He says, arise, call upon thy God. If it be that God will think upon us and we perish not. Hey, this is so desperate. We need everyone praying. We don't care what God you pray to. Maybe someone will answer. Get up and pray. We need all hands on deck. Imagine how desperate a ship has got to be when they've tried everything they possibly could that they're all desperately praying to anyone hoping that answer. Let me tell you, this is some storm. Let me tell you that there's probably some supernatural elements to this storm that the, the mariner said, we've never seen anything like this. This is something different. And Jonah's sleeping. How in the world can you be sleeping? We're going to die. Verse number seven. And they said everyone to his fellow, come, let us cast lots that we may know whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots and the lot came upon Jonah. So they said, we got to figure out whose fault this is. And so they cast lots and they figured out uh, through this uh, way of doing it that it was Jonah. Oh, it's your fault. Who are you? Verse 8. Then they said to him, tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause is this evil upon us? What is thy occupation? That's a powerful phrase. What is thy occupation? We'll answer that in a second. See what he says. What is thy occupation? And from whence comest thou? What is thy country? And what people art thou? That's a good question. We're going to drown. We figured out it's your fault. Who are you? Where you come from? Why is this happening? Give us information. And so he tells them. Verse number 10. Uh, verse number 9. And he said unto them, I am a Hebrew. That's the people he is. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. So he says, guess what? I come from Israel. I'm a Hebrew person. And I'm a preacher. I believe and I fear God. I believe that God is real. I fear him. Remember, we've talked about the fear of the Lord in the past. The fear of the Lord comes from a knowledge of God. You don't fear something or get angry with something or have an emotional response to something you don't know. He says, I fear God. I believe that God's real. I believe that God keeps his word. I'm a preacher. Notice he wasn't one day going to be a preacher. He's not running as a young. He says, I am currently. I'm a preacher. I believe in God. I trust in God's word. Let me tell you about my God. He's the God who made heaven and earth. He's the God who controls everything. Notice their response to this, verse 10. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to them, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of God because he told them. Why is this happening? Because God's angry with me. Why? He told me to go preach to those folks and I didn't. Why? <laughs> What's going on? What you... Why? Get this right. We're going to die because of you. Now they're scared. Man, a real God who would go after an entire ship to get to one man? This God means business. No other God can do this. By the way, we'll speak more about this tonight. Verse number 11. And they said unto him, What shall we do unto thee that the sea may come to us? For the sea hath wrought and tempted And he said unto them, Take me up. And cast me forth into sea. So the sea will be common to you. For I know that for my sake the great temptest is upon you. Notice this. He's a great patriot. Throw me into the sea. Now he doesn't know that God's going to prepare a great fish. A great whale for him. Why did he want him to cast him into the sea? Because if I'm dead. God doesn't have to get my attention. I want you to throw me in the sea. So I die. He's a great patriot. He's willing to die for his country. He's fine with it. Now, the right answer would have said, ah, turn around and take me back. I know once we turn around and get me back to Israel, um, things will be all right. But now he says, no, just toss me overboard. Does he have a death wish? He doesn't want to die. 
he's willing to die for his country, for his people, for the things that are going to happen in the future. If he could stop it, if he could spare the lives of all the people who are going to go through torture, he was willing to throw me in the sea. What we see here is that he was a great patriot. He put patriotism above serving God. He put his love for his country in the way of being obedient to what the Lord's given him to do. Verse number 13, notice the response of the men. Again, we'll tip more about this tonight. Nevertheless, the men rode to bring it back to the land, but they could not, for the sea wrought, wrought and was tempted against them. Notice they said, hey, we're not throwing them in there overboard. If God wants them to do something, we're not tossing them overboard. They try to do everything they possibly could not to throw them overboard. We don't want to make God angry, any angrier. We don't want this God who could bring this supernatural storm to get mad at us because we touched his preacher. <laughs> no, they tried to do everything they could. Finally, verse number 14, wherefore they cried unto the Lord and we said, we beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life and let us not lay upon us innocent blood for thou, O Lord, has done as it pleased thee. <laughs> God... Please, we're, we're going to do what the preacher said. We're going to toss him overboard. Please don't kill us for this. Please don't kill us for touching your man, for harming your preacher. Woo, please don't. And so they took up Jonah and cast him forth into sea. And the sea ceased from her raging. Just like that. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. We'll talk more about that tonight. So we, what we see here is Jonah the patriot. He did not run from the call of God because he didn't want to be a preacher. He ran the other direction because he believed God, because he knew his Bible. He understood prophecy, and he understood that the Assyrians were in the future going to destroy his people. And because he loved his country more than God, he was willing to die for his country. Again, we call that a great patriot, someone who's willing to die to have their country free, willing to die to allow their country to move forward. He's a great patriot, but God had other plans. The second thing I want to bring to you in the book of Jonah is not only Jonah the patriot, but I want to show you the obedience of nature, the obedience of nature. You know, there is no limit to what God can do to get someone's attention. That storm was there to get Jonah's attention. But he still didn't respond properly. Just let me die. That's fine. And God says, no, no, it's not going to be that easy. Now, when the sailors dumped him overboard, nature obeyed God. It's almost like Jesus said, peace be still. And all of a sudden, everything was still. And they went, what happened? These sailors understood it was God that did it. God was in control of all nature. And then God sent a great whale, a fish, to come and swallow Jonah whole. Now, imagine the first couple minutes. One, two, three. And Jonah didn't scream. He was content. I've done it. I'm dying. Nothing can be done about this now. Hits the water. And all of a sudden, glub, glub, glub. You could see him just kind of holding his breath, sinking down in the water, resigned to his fate, going deeper. And all of a sudden, this whale comes and swallows him up. Now, use your divine imagination, not Disney's imagination. There was not a lot of room in that stomach. It's not like he could build a campfire and put a little tent up. He's in the digestive tract. Of a whale. And I don't know. If you've ever been close to a digestive tract. Just listening. Getting close to your dog's breath. Is probably bad enough. But you imagine. The rotting. Processing. Seaweed. It talked about how the seaweed. Had tangled in his body. So when he's in there. He's got seaweed around him. He's got the smell. And there's no light. It's not like you light up a torch. He didn't travel with a torch. He didn't have a nice little lighter. He's in darkness. He's compassed in a tight little space. Seaweeds wrapped around him. He probably can't move well. 
smelling the, the contents of the stomach, which again is not very pleasant. Then you have the stomach acids that are starting to work. And it took about three days before Jonah finally says, All right, Lord, I'll go. I'm willing to go. Let me go. <laughs> I'll go. I'll do whatever you tell me to do. And I want to tell you that nature is obeying God. The storms obey God. The whale obeyed God. When God said, swallow him. Can you imagine? I, wherever that whale was at, God directed that whale. Here you go. And then said, hey, whale, I know you usually eat plankton and other stuff. I want you to swallow this guy up. And he swallows him up. Now, I can't imagine that it was very comfortable for the whale to have some guy pounding inside either. But the whale keeps him in. Until Jonah finally says, all right, God, patriotism aside, I'll do what you tell me to do. That's fine. I'll do what you tell me to do. And then notice at the end of chapter 2 and verse 10. And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. So not only was this whale probably minding its own business, and God said, I want you to go to the middle of the sea, and I want you to swallow this thing that's now following under the water. And then I want you to keep them in your mouth until I tell them. And then, all right, fish, you can drop them off. And he just didn't let them loose in the middle of the sea. He brought the whale to a place where the whale is very easily to get beached. It's not like the whale can walk. And it has to get to the place where there's enough dry land to kick them out. And notice it said vomited them out. I'm sure that wasn't pleasant. Seaweeds and stuff all over. Kicked into the beach. Two, uh, three days of not seeing light. Can you imagine that sun? Whew. But this whale is completely obedient to the Lord. I don't know how far that ship got before the storm hits. But the whale brought him all the way back. Under the direction of God. Isn't it amazing? There is no limit what God can use to get someone's attention. What does God have to do to get your attention? What does God have to do for you to finally say, all right, God, I'll have it your way. What does God have to do to get your attention? He has all of creation at his disposal. Now, let me take a little side thing. There are some people that say this story is a mythology. It can never happen. Oh, that's so silly and ridiculous that a whale can do this. This can't be true. Well, I love history. In 1888, there was a British whaling ship that was chasing after a whale. And after a, a, some rough times, a sailor went overboard. And so the crew tried to look for him. He never resurfaced. And they said, oh, crew lost. Well, they chased this whale for three days. Three days later, they finally harpooned him, got him, put him up on deck and began to uh, butcher process the whale. And as they opened it up, Three days later, there's that missing crew member still alive. Happened in 1888. It's happened before. Why couldn't it happen in Jonah's time? I love history. It's neither here nor there, but I'm just trying to give you evidence that it could happen. It's realistic. It's happened before. It's not some story that someone made up. This is history. This isn't some kid fairy tale that we try to teach them a moral lesson. This is history. Isn't God wonderful? Isn't he powerful? Isn't he amazing? <laughs> we see the obedience of nature. So we start off with Jonah the patriot. He's not running away from the call of God. He's running away because he knows who God is. He knows God's word. He knows prophecy. He knows the Bible. And he's running because of his knowledge of God. But God says, no, 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 I insist. I want you to go. And so we use nature, the storm and the fish, to bring Jonah and bring him to the place where Jonah is at least willing to physically go. Now we come to the third thing, the revival at Nineveh. The revival at Nineveh. Go with me to Jonah chapter number 3. Jonah chapter number 3 and notice with me in verse 1. The word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. 
and preach unto it the preaching that I bid to thee. So Jonah arise and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days journey. Now here we can learn a couple things about this city. It says it's a grand city. It's a great city. It's talking about its size and population. How many people are in Nineveh? Well, may we look? Notice at the end of the book of Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4 and verse 11. Let's look and see how many um, people are here. Notice in Jonah chapter 4 verse 11. And should I not spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score. Now remember a score is 20. So six times 20 is 120. So six score thousand. 120,000 persons, notice this, that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle. So notice, this city is so big that it has 120,000 people that can't tell their left hand from the right hand. What people can't tell their left hand from the right hand? Kids. Babies. So there's 120,000 babies. Well, if you're going to have a baby properly, you need a parent. Two, preferably, right? A mother and a father. So 120 plus another 120 for the moms and another 120 for dads. Where are we at now? You're like, math. We wasn't doing math today. <laughs> All right. Now let's give each of those families average of 2.5 kids, right? That's what the average family is supposed to have, 2.5 kids. I don't know where they get the other calf at, but two. But let's just say that you have two kids. All right, now you can start mathing up. You can do math in your own time. But may we round it to about a half a million people that's in the city? At the very least, that's a low estimate. According to what the Bible says, half a million people. Now go back to chapter 3 and notice how great this city is. Notice in verse number 3. So Jonah arise and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days journey. That means that to get across Nineveh, if you are going to go to the border of the city of Nineveh, remember Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Assyria is the empire, the country. Nineveh is the city. To walk across Nineveh is three days journey. Well, average walking speed is about 30 miles. So three days journey is it's 90 miles across from one end to the other. Now we're talking about a big city. A big city that it takes you three days to walk across. Do you know that you can walk across the state of Rhode Island in one day? Nineveh is a big place with at least a half a million people in there. More than that probably, but we'll go low estimate. Half a million people, three and a half uh, day, or three days across. Remember, they don't have apartment buildings. They don't have big skyscrapers. People had to spread out. This is a massive city. So no, Jonah comes in. And probably getting a lot of stares. After all, he's probably got white flesh that's bleached because of the acid that he had been sitting in for a while. He probably has a little bit of scars. He probably smells a little bit funny. Now, I know it took a while to get to Nineveh and whatnot. But, you know, some of this stuff probably didn't go away right away. And here's this guy who goes in. One day's journey gets to the middle of town. Verse number four. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey. So he walked into the city about 30 miles, one day's journey. And he cried, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I've done my job. See you later. That's it. His message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. A message of eight words. All right. In 40 days, God's destroyed this place. See you later. I'm getting ringside seats. Bye. That's it. I delivered my message. I've done what God's told me to do. I came here to say eight words. I traveled all this way in a well of a belly through a storm. I've gone through all this stuff. Give you an eight word message. See you later. Probably didn't add all that. It's probably me, but that's probably what he's thinking. I'm done. Done my duty. See you later. But notice what happens, verse 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God. Because of this crazy preacher giving an eight-word message. It wasn't even a 30-minute diatribe. Eight words. Done. And 
And so the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. So they all believed that. You know what? We believe there's something true. May I pause here? It was not Jonah's message, but it was the Spirit of God that did this. Let me tell you that a preacher could be a good orator, but that's all for naught if the Spirit's not with it. We must have God's Spirit. God's Spirit is the one that does the work. The preacher's just the instrument. It's God that does the work. And listen, Jonah did this. And by the way, he's not very happy about it. (laughs) He's probably happy about pronouncing judgment. God's going to destroy all you in 40 days. See you later. And the people took him seriously. I think God's going to destroy this place. And so they got serious. They put on sackcloth. Sackcloth is a type of um, undergarment that is very hairy and very wooly. And when you put it on, it's not comfortable. It irritates the skin. It is just nasty to feel upon. Why do people use sackcloth? Well, it carries the idea when you start wearing it, you start getting uncomfortable. And you start to go, I think this is how God feels with my skin, with my sin. My sin makes them uncomfortable. It's just not good to feel with. And it's a way to humble yourself. It's a way to publicly humble yourself. Notice verse 6. For the word came to the king of Nineveh. Now this is just not the people. The king of Nineveh heard this message. And he arose from his throne, laid down his robe, and covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes. Ashes carries the idea of that we, we came from the dust. And so I'm sitting in ashes. I'm nothing but dirt. I am nothing. The king, the empire, the emperor takes his royal robe off, puts on sackcloth, sits in a pile of ashes and says, I don't want God to destroy us. I think God means it here. And he's getting right. This is amazing. People are getting right. Notice how far they take it. Verse 7. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Everybody's fasting. We're proclaiming a countrywide fast. And let them not feed nor drink water. Not even the animals. Don't give them anything. We want everyone fasting and humbling themselves before God. Verse number 8. But let man and beasts be covered with sackcloth. Now, this is how serious they are. They, they're taking it to the extremes. Can you imagine putting a sackcloth on a cow? Or a horse? Or a donkey? But this is how serious. We want everyone to get right with God. We want everyone to hum. We're even putting sackcloth on the animals because we want to make sure we're just as thoroughly right as possible. When's the last time you went to the extremes to get right with God? Usually we try to see how far we can get away with. When's the last time you said, I'm going to go as far as I can to get right with God? Even if it is, quote unquote, too far, I want to make sure that I'm as thoroughly right with God as possible. I'm willing to set aside anything, even if I think it has the hint that it may not be pleasing to God. I want to set it aside. I want to do right with him. They put on sackcloth, not only on every man, but every beast. They're saying... We don't want God to destroy us. Notice their reasoning. Verse number 8. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. And let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hand. Now notice that. I told you about the Assyrian Empire. They're actually getting right because of their violence. They're saying, you know what? Maybe we've taken things too far. Maybe we shouldn't have done all this stuff. They're getting right with God and saying, you know what? We've really... We're getting right from our violence. Verse number nine. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce angle that we perish not? And God saw their works and they turned from their evil way. And God repented of the evil that he said he would do unto them and he did it not. You know what this is? Revival. That an entire city of a half a million plus people got as right with God as they possibly knew how at that time. Wouldn't that be amazing if our town, all of them got as thoroughly right with God as possible? God can bring great revivals. God could do certain things. God could do amazing things. By the way, what is this? 
verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 9, salvation is of the Lord. Why would God go through all of this trouble for some bloodthirsty Assyrians who aren't even Hebrews? Because God's not willing that any shall perish, but all shall come to repentance. God wants to see everyone come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. It doesn't matter who they are, and it doesn't matter what lifestyle they live. You know, we're often guilty of that. That if we feel like if they have a different lifestyle than us, they're never going to listen to us, so I'm not going to try. You know God wants them saved. You understand it's hypocrisy if we send a missionary to Africa, but we won't witness to the black people across the street from us. God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. All those are Catholic people, they'll never listen. God wants everyone to be saved. Oh, those are Jewish people. They'll never listen. Those are Islamic people over there. Those are atheists over there. Hey, those people believe this about marriage. These people believe this about quote-unquote love. God's not willing that any perish, but all should come to repentance. That's a Democrat. They'll never listen. God's not willing that any should perish. That's a Republican. He'll never listen. God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. You understand? Salvation is of the Lord. And he will go to great lengths to get the message to the people. Even if it's not the people that we think it should give it. God is not willing. That means that God wants bikers to come to know Christ as their Savior. God wants Wiccans to come to know Christ as a Savior. God wants serial killers to come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Wisconsin has more serial killers come from the state than any other. It's something weird about Wisconsin. But they had one famous one by the name of Jeffrey Dahmer. Would not only kill people in Milwaukee, but he would eat them. When he was arrested, he had people's body parts in his refrigerator. But Jeffrey Dahmer, while he was in prison, accepted Jesus Christ as his personal savior. And let me tell you, this serial killer who ate people, He's in heaven now. Imagine that. God is not willing that any shall perish, but all shall come to repentance. You say, I don't like my president. Well, you know, God's not willing that he should perish, but he should come to repentance. I don't like our governor. Have you prayed for his salvation? And he would come to know Jesus Christ and come to repentance. Let me tell you, salvation is of the Lord. And what does that mean? That means God wants everyone to be saved and everybody can be saved if they come to God. What we learn about here is that God spent more time getting someone to go than it actually took for them to get saved and then to get right. Isn't that true about us? It takes more effort for us to finally get up and do what we're supposed to than it actually takes for someone to get saved. For someone to get right with God and just turning from their wicked ways and crying out to God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You understand salvation is easy. God has already paid the price. We just have to accept that gift. More people would be saved if the messengers would just go out. What we see is that salvation is of the Lord. Let me tell you, who is it that you've been resisting telling about the Lord? Who is it? Maybe it's a family member. Oh, they'll never listen to me. Why take the risk? My neighbor, they hate me. You need to go tell them about the Lord. I go to the grocery store and I've always got that guy. God wants him to come to know Christ as a Savior. I have a lady who I seem to always get her in the checkout line over at um, Menards. That every time I get the checkout line, I'll pass her out a track and say, if there's anything we can do to pray for you, let me know. And she starts yelling at me. There was one time I hit, I gave her the track, forgot it was her, just gave it to her. And she yelled at me and I, she was chasing me outside the parking lot as I'm walking away trying to get peace. She's following me out the door yelling at me. Next time I see her, you know what I do? Give her another track. Because God even wants her saved. You understand, God's not willing that any shall perish. Salvation is of the Lord. Here are some bloodthirsty empire that we would call the Nazis of the ancient world. 
Let me tell you that if Adolf Hitler had come to himself and realized that he was a sinner and because of his sin that he had violated God's righteousness and that he deserved to go to hell and if Adolf Hitler realized that Jesus saved him and if he had bowed his head and if he accepted Christ, God would have even saved Adolf Hitler. He would have saved Stalin. He would have saved anybody and is willing to save anybody. Everybody needs to hear the gospel because salvation is of the Lord. There's not a single person or a group of people that God says, nope, nope, no place for them in heaven. I don't want them. Jesus' blood was enough to pay for every person. And again, God spent more time to get the messenger to go out than it actually took for the message to work. An eight-word sermon, but God's spirit was in it. You said, I don't know what to say. Just... Tell them what God did for you and trust that God's spirit will work in their heart. Trust that God wants them saved more than you do and you could trust God to do his work. We just have to get the word out. Can you trust him? What I'm asking you today is first of all, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal savior, let me tell you that God wants you to be saved. He wants you to be forgiven of your sins. He wants to bring you up to heaven. He made you a promise and you could accept him today. But for those of you who know Jesus Christ, your Savior, what I'm asking you today is I want you to pray of the most impossible person that you know in your context, meaning you have personal contact with them. Who is the most hardened? And I want you to pray for them today. I want you to on purpose bring them to the throne room of grace and ask for God to save their wretched soul. It could be the meanest relative that you have that person that you don't even like to go to family reunions because you're going to run in that person. It could be that neighbor down the street. It could be that coworker who chases you down to follow and to point out everything you do wrong. I, who is that one person that you would say is impossible to get saved? And I want you today to go to a mighty God who wants to save everybody. And I want you to go and bring him, that name, to the throne room of grace. And trust God by faith that God can save even that person. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus. And I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you. Thank you.